Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olai Neaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Will Swift about his new book, Pat and Dick, The Nixons, An Intimate Portrait of a Marriage. Hi, Will. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if we could begin with you telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I have several roles. I'm a a psychologist with a private practice uh, and have been doing that since 1970. And I also am a historian and a biographer. So uh, I've had a long-term interest in uh, long-term relationships and uh, couples and uh, actually began doing marital counseling in 1970. So when I began writing history, I've always uh, uh, tried to incorporate a couple in my story. My first book was The Roosevelt's and the Royal which told the story of two couples, uh, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt and King George and Queen Elizabeth and their lives and how they intersected at the Hyde Park picnic in 1939 and the effect that had on the country and Anglo-American relations. And then my second book uh, followed out of that, which was The Kennedys Amidst the Gathering Storm, which was the story of the Kennedy family's emergence on the world stage during Joseph Kennedy's ambassadorship to London during the years 1938, 39, and 1940. Uh, so I uh, also covered the relationship between Joseph and Rose Kennedy uh, in that book. So when it came to writing a third book, I decided I wanted to write a story of a complete marriage and a presidential marriage uh, because I'm interested in both the uh, rhythms of closeness and distance uh, and compromise and endurance and joy, et cetera, that occur in a long-term marriage. But I'm also interested in the particular difficulties that a political marriage uh, uh, has when, when intimacy is brought forth in the public eye. So I looked over the presidential marriages, and really the one that had not been done uh, was the Nixons, and it had been 20 years since they died. I thought that was fascinating that they'd been dead 20 years, and no one had, in my words, dared to do a book about them, because the reputation of their marriage was was so miserable that people shied away from it. In fact, uh, about uh, five years ago this May in Boston, I was talking to some agents at the first uh, Biographers International Conference, and I talked to one agent and told him my idea of doing a book on the Nixon marriage. Well, that's a terrible idea. Uh, so I, but I was not dissuaded by that. And uh, I've always been very uh, influenced by Ron Chernow, who, who talks very much about the importance uh, in looking at the primary sources and comparing them to the secondary sources and to the myths and stories that keep being passed from biographer to biographer, from book to book. So, I started to, I read the secondary material on the Nixons and encountered things like Diane Sawyer saying, you know, they, they had, their marriage was a dance of unhappiness or uh, other people saying it was uh, quite a difficult uh, situation. And so I then began to study the uh, primary materials 
and found a different story. I'm going to stop here because <laughs> I could, I'll go on, but I'll give you a chance. No, that's <laughs> perfect because I was going to ask you what sources you found most helpful. So we get yeah. into that. Well, one of, first of all, one of the things that's very interesting here I am a uh, Massachusetts born Kennedy Democrat uh, who is also a psychologist going to the West Coast to meet the people at the Nixon Foundation. And they're like, you know, when I arrive, they're basically <laughs> metaphorically throwing their hands up and saying, what are we going to do with him? Because there have been a number of pathographies written about Richard Nixon. And the last thing they want is a prejudiced pathological slant. There's been plenty of that. So it took me a number of years of slow patient work to show them that I was not going to do a hatchet job and also to meet, to figure out who were the top scholars in the Nixon area and uh, befriend them and get to know them so that I really slowly integrated the, the, the very high walls and little bit by little bit the foundation began to uh, trust me enough to let me talk to some of the insiders. Uh, and I was fortunate enough that the, some of the Pat Nixon papers had been opened uh, fairly recently before I began my research. And so I had the wonderful trove of letters that Pat Nixon had written to her best friend, Helene Brown, which give a great sense of her personality. And uh, th there were other things opened uh, during the time that I was writing the book. I was also very lucky because the Nixon Foundation on the 100th birthday of Nixon, uh, Pat Nixon opened some of the courtship letters. And uh, on the 100th birthday of Richard Nixon, which was a year ago last January, they opened some of the wonderful courtship letters, sorry, wartime letters that were written in 1943 and 1944 that showed, uh, showed a different side of the relationship. And also, finally, the uh, press office materials of the First Lady were opened uh, towards the end of my research. So I also was able to tell the story of, of the PR relations work that Pat and Richard Nixon did to uh, challenged uh, accounts of their marriage which were, and, and of the First Lady's performance that were particularly negative. So I got to talk to insiders like uh, private uh, secretaries uh, who had worked for the Nixons and uh, some of the staff members, Dwight Chapin, Ken Kachijan, uh and a number of other people. And eventually, uh, it took me two years, but I eventually managed to have lunch with Ed Cox, Trisha Nixon's husband, uh, and we had a two-and-a-half-hour lunch and uh, uh, covered a wide range of topics. And eventually, I gave, at the lunch, I gave him some pages from the book to edit, which he did right on the spot. And then I asked for his permission to give him a list of questions which he would take home and discuss with his wife and give me answers. So that was the way that I finally was able to talk to members of the family. I also talked to Richard Nixon's brother, Ed Nixon. Uh, Julie provided, Nixon Eisenhower provided background support, but she'd said what she wanted to say in her book and she wasn't so interested in talking further about it. Mm -hmm. So did you have an impression of the Nixon's marriage prior to writing the book, and then how did that change over the course of writing the book? Sorry, you said, what was the first part of the oh, question? Did sorry. I have an opinion? Did you have an impression? What was your impression of the Nixons when you first started writing, and did that change at all during the course of your research? Yes, thanks. Uh, my impression was that it was somewhat of a um, 
workmanship-like relationship. I hadn't paid enormous attention to it, but the things that I'd read uh, in other accounts of, of presidential marriages had said that they were rather distant and uh, you know, a very effective team in some ways, but, but not close emotionally. And, and so what, I, what changed uh, was that I saw that really three things. Uh, first, three myths that uh, my book chops down. Uh, uh, one is that uh, Richard Dixon was sort of a cool, uh, cold-hearted husband. And in fact, I saw a very tender and sentimental side to him, both in his courtship letters, the story of his courtship, uh, in his letters, which he wrote during the wartime. He said, all of me loves all of you all the time. I love you so much this very minute. Uh, you're the top. Uh, I, I'm essentially, you're, you're so beautiful and so intelligent, and it's no wonder you're the only one for me. So I, I really began to see that side, and then I talked with uh, Lucy Winchester, who was the social secretary. And she told me a wonderful story that in March 1969, when Richard Nixon uh, called her in to his office, and of course, she was a little nervous. What does he want? Is he going to fire me, or what's happening? This, she just they were only in off of a couple months. And he proceeded to tell her that he wanted to throw a surprise birthday party for his wife and had planned it in minute detail, telling her that Pat was to come in and stand to the north end of the north side of the east and east room. And he got so excited planning it that he started to sing happy birthday and he sang the entire song all the way through. That's how engrossed he was. And he loved uh, planning her birthdays. In fact, during the war, he'd written her a letter saying, it's your birthday, and all your birthdays will always be reminders of our happiness and my love for you. He always followed through on that, and interestingly enough, he was not that interested in his own birthday. So I saw, and from insiders too, a very, very warm kind of side of him that was really kept inside the private realm of the marriage, because for him, politics was an arena, sort of a gladiatorial arena and not a place to be intimate or close uh, or vulnerable. The second thing that I discovered, you know, there's an image of plastic pad or passive pad, and that she, Richard Nixon actually said that she was the stronger character. And I saw so many instances of that, that from 1946 when they uh, he ran for Congress for the first time and it was a very uphill fight and how gritty she was with practically no sleep. She she gave birth to Tricia during the campaign and was up a couple hours later doing opposition research and how she was totally a teammate and, and the backbone of the team and that whenever he became despairing, she was the one who bucked him up and said, no, everything's going to work out. We just need to keep fighting. And she repeated that strength over and over again throughout the marriage, uh, notably in 1952, when they were, uh, when he was attacked by the New York Post and other newspapers for having a slush fund that was illegal and was provided by wealthy donors, and he got to the point uh, 
where he was, he just said, I think maybe I should resign. And she, she went right at him and she said, you can't resign. It will, it will defeat Eisenhower and it will ruin your life and you must continue. And I guess he said, well, okay. <laughs> and then right before he, he decided to give the checker speech, which he prepared to defend his uh, honor and the, explain the circumstances on television, famous checker speech. And right before he went up on the stage after 48 hours of intensive study and preparation, he said, I don't think I can do it. And Pat took his hand and said, yes, you can, and marched him up on the stage. And she sat there absolutely motionless because she knew the camera was on her and she was afraid that she would break down and cry and undermine his whole message. And that was really the beginning of what became the plastic pad because people could sense the tight tension that she had in that position. And it was in 1969 that uh, she, the reporter for the Daily, well, uh, Women's Wear Daily had finally coined the phrase plastic pat. But she was, as Richard Nixon said, her plastic was tougher than the toughest steel. And uh, so I, I really saw that she was very much a teammate of his, and in and her stamina, emotional stamina and physical stamina in the many tours they made around the world, especially uh, people don't remember as much the Nixons who were the first famous second couple of the land during the Eisenhower years. Eisenhower sent them for 70 days to the Far East, and she was extraordinary. And, and also in Africa in 1957, she was so amazing. Uh, famous story is she was in a market it was rotting, food stinking, it was 100 degrees, and it was intolerable conditions, and someone gave her, as a tradition dictated, a huge, ugly fish eye, which she was supposed to eat. So she just simply plopped it down her throat and swallowed it without a second thought, and Jack Brennan, or Don Hughes, the aide, uh, looked at her and said, I can't believe that. And she said, that's just how we do it. So the second myth, again, was that she was not weak, she was not strong. And third, the myth was that they had a miserable marriage. And uh, I think they had a very committed, spacious uh, kind of marriage that, that was much more affectionate and playful in private than it was in public. Mm -hmm. And the public wanted to see a couple holding hands and the sort of Nancy Reagan gazing in your eyes kind of thing. But the Nixons really were both working very hard in public and they were not in a realm where they were thinking about intimacy or closeness. So there was a, a whole sense from aides on the outside to the public to the press that they weren't close. But the, but the thing I found in interviewing people was that the closer the people were to the Nixons, the more they saw and described a warm relationship. Mm -hmm. I'll stop there for a moment. Well, I want to go back to the courtship because you mentioned that, and that is really, I mean, obviously that opens the book, but it's such a strikingly different impression of the pair of them than exists in the popular imagination. So could you just talk about their courtship a bit? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I found fascinating was that the first year of the courtship, which started basically when they met in January 1938 at a play rehearsal, was very unbalanced in that Pat Nixon was very grounded in her life. She was a extremely popular and beloved school teacher. She taught business classes at Whittier High. Uh, 
the kids adored her such that they would literally, she was like a, a, a movie star in a sense. She, had, she was seen as very glamorous and she had done bit parts in, in, in movies. Uh, and the kids, the boys suddenly started taking typing classes, whereas they never had before. Boys and girls had massive crushes on her, so much so that she would go home, and one night she was walking to her door, and suddenly head, headlights lit up from a car, and they were kids who were tracking her and trying to see if she was on a date. She, at another point, boys found her address and knocked on her door to see what she was up to. And she could be quite, you know, stern and, and proud, and she gave them a look like, forget it, guys, get out of here. But she was really a star in, in that world. Whereas Richard Nixon was living when they first met in a, you know, in the garage over his parents' house. He had uh, had gone back to Whittier where he tried to get away from after Duke Law School. He was not that thrilled being there. He had tried to get a job with the FBI in Los Angeles, and they said he was not sufficiently aggressive, which is which is rather humorous, so they didn't give him the job. So, so his mother had to get him a job at uh, top, the top law, law firm in Whittier, and he was just beginning as a lawyer. He didn't feel successful. He wasn't going on dates. Uh, he really was not in a place that, that was comfortable or happy, and here he was trying to woo uh, Pat Ryan, uh, and in the first time they had met at the play rehearsal, he offered to drive her and another friend home. She sat on the far outside by the window, and he leaned across and said, I'd like to have a date with you. And she said, I'm busy. So he cooled his jets for the second play rehearsal, and then the third time he took them home, and he leaned across and said, what about that date? And then, then he, she laughed, and he said, "Don't laugh. I'm going to marry you some." And you know, and that was that was the determination. And basically, he pursued her relentlessly with the same kind of intensity that he used to win political campaigns. And <clears throat> for instance, he couldn't ice skate. He hated it, and he was terrible at it. But he would practice assiduously falling down and bloodying himself repeatedly because he was determined to be able to do it enough so he could go skating with Pat and her friends. And interestingly enough, after they met in January, in June, she went to, to Michigan to buy a car, and she disappeared from his life for three months. She really wanted to cool his jets. And he was quite miserable without her. And then in September, he heard that she was back, and he wrote her a letter basically saying... I would like to see you if you could stand it. I promise you it will never be boring. And as we know, he was right about that. Yeah. <laughs> Their life was never boring. And uh, she, she relented. And he, he told Frank Gannon, his, an interviewer in the 1980s, that he thought he really won her in 1939 when they went to the Rose Bowl together and his alma mater, Duke, was, which was undefeated and unscored upon, ended up being beaten at the last minute by Pat's alma mater, USC. And I describe it as the kind of exciting moment where a reserved date might take her boyfriend's hand and hold it for the first time in public.
<laughs> so I think gradually then they began to, she began to see his great sense of purpose, his great sense of adventure, and his extremely high intelligence. And she slowly began to fall for him as well. Um, one of the things we don't, I think, know as much about Pat Nixon is that she she really had a high need for purpose, very much matching her husband. She was very ambitious, and she loved doing something that was important and meaningful in a larger sense, and that was one of the key bonds between them. Mm-hmm. So how did she feel about his political career? Because obviously she supported him, but she was also somewhat ambivalent about the way that it impacted her life as well, right? Right. I think it's interesting. I mean, clearly she's known for being ambivalent about Mm -hmm. it because she didn't, mainly after they had children. I would say in the first political campaign in 1946, she was very enthusiastic. In fact, Richard Nixon wrote in his diary that uh, we were never happier than we were in November 1946 when they won the first campaign, truly as a team. But after they had children, she was very concerned about the uh, loss of privacy, about the fact, especially in the 1950s, that their daughters would be uh, told terrible things about their father and would be teased. And she didn't like uh, not only the sense of privacy being invaded, but the intense scrutiny. And because Pat was a, um, like Dick Nixon, Pat was a very perfectionistic person. She had extremely high standards and she held herself to them. She wanted to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect hostess, and the perfect uh, vice presidential uh, wife. And so it was the pressure that she put on herself was was extraordinary. But I think one of the things that's very interesting about the Nixons is that uh, we see we see them as a model of ambivalence in a marriage, uh, which is true because she she admired his capacity, high purpose, and his capacity to think and speak publicly. But she also, of course, uh, was ambivalent about the other side of it, which was the how hard he worked how little he was home, and how often they had to be under the scrutiny of the press. But I say that uh, in the book that every marriage has incompatibilities, and this is just an example of a marital incompatibility. And I quote Tolstoy had a wonderful expression, which was, "It it is not compatibility that makes a happy marriage, but how you deal with incompatibility. And I think that they, as much as they're seen as not a model of so many things, they can be seen as a model of a couple who found a successful way to deal with incompatibility, to deal with dark periods in their marriage, to move apart for periods that were difficult, but never to get so distant or so alienated that they lost the thread between them and that they couldn't come back and re-revive their marriage. Mm So I was interested to see how, within the context of the context of this book, which is looking at the Nixon's marriage, their political marriage with the Eisenhowers seemed to be cast in a new relief. So can you talk a bit about the relationship that existed between the two couples? Yes. And I, I will say uh, that this is an interesting question because none of the reviewers uh, so far have paid any attention to that. They actually just don't know that this is a revision of the view of the relationship because it, they had a far uh, warmer and more connected relationship than people think. Mm-hmm. For instance, when, uh, I mean, obviously there was a, a blip when during the Chequers crisis when they felt the Nixon felt a little slighted that Eisenhower, you know, didn't come 
maybe as strongly forward to support them as they would have liked. But right after they were elected, uh, Pat Nixon wrote a friend and said that, wrote a friend Helene, and said how wonderful it was that they had been invited backstage in the White House immediately to receptions that no one else in the vice presidential realm had been invited to before. And in January 1954, the Eisenhower's through a birthday dinner at the White House for Richard Nixon, which which again was unprecedented. Uh, Mamie became, who had various illnesses and uh, was somewhat weak and uh, would often rely upon Pat Nixon uh, to take over for her. And, and so that added to Pat's burden. And of course, Eisenhower had a heart attack and also a stroke in office, so Nixon had to take over at those times. Uh, but there was also a time in 1958 or 9, I've forgotten at the moment, where the Eisenhowers did a very unusual thing. Is they went to dinner at the Nixon's private home and, and stood in front of the door with, so that photographers uh, could take a picture of them. And I think Eisenhower, at about 1954, after he'd sent them around the world and he had seen Nixon take on McCarthy for him, he, he came to to trust quite a bit in Nixon's ability. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's recognized. They're always described as having a very strange or strained relationship. But I think it was much better than people think, given the fact that Eisenhower was a military man and didn't really want anyone to succeed him. It, it, was, it, it wasn't like he was grooming a successor. He always had the idea that he was the top guy and everybody else served him. So within that context, I think he trusted uh, Nixon a lot. And, and whenever he sent them abroad, he was sending Nixon on very sensitive missions to gather intelligence around the world about uh, the communist influence in various countries. And Pat was working very much with human rights and especially women's rights on those trips. So I, I think they, they uh, I think the, the, in Eisenhower at a press conference in 1960 during the Nixon's campaign for the presidency, which he was exhausted at the end and made an offhand remark uh, when someone asked him what significant role did Nixon play in the administration and jokingly and sort of frustratedly Eisenhower said, well, give me a week and I'll, I'll come, I'll think about it and I'll come back to you. And that was taken as Eisenhower saying he wasn't very important. And Eisenhower immediately realized that it was a terrible mistake and it, he did not mean that at all. And that's often seized upon as sort of the, the symbol of their relationship. So the job of First Lady is sort of a baptism by fire. How did Mrs. Nixon go about um, forming her role in the position, and what were her biggest successes? Okay. Uh, first of all, she came in at a time that was very difficult because the country was really split between women who and the press who were very much interested in, in feminist positions, women's rights, women taking a strong stand outside the home, and traditional conservative groups and conservative women who believed that the, the important role for a woman was to be a, a successful wife and mother. And so she was in an impossible position. She couldn't please everybody. And uh, I think the first year in the White House, well, I don't think... I know that the first year in the White House was very difficult for, for Mrs. Nixon because she had to define a role. She was being pressed by Haldeman, who was Nixon's uh, chief of staff, to get out there and score political points. And really, her first, what she wanted to do first 
was to make sure that the White House was the people's home. And she did more, really, than any other First Lady before her, and perhaps since, to make sure that all people of all all, all uh, stripes in all walks of life were invited to the White House. I think their first Thanksgiving was they had uh, disabled people uh, in into the White House for Thanksgiving dinner, uh, people from uh, elderly homes. And she made, she wanted, quote, the little people, quote, quote, to feel uh, happy and to feel that they were included. And this was a big priority of hers. And she also put a big priority on uh Answering her correspondence, which drove Nixon and his and his men crazy because they felt she'd spent too much time at it, but she always said, "Think what it means to some woman in the Midwest when she gets a letter from the first lady of the land. It means so much that 's something I can do." She eventually uh, came upon volunteerism, which is uh, a theme and uh, cause that she supported going going into various tours around the country to volunteer projects because she felt that the early American settlers, for instance, in New England, through volunteerism, had helped raise their churches, their schoolhouses, their communities, and she felt it was a strand in American life that had been neglected. And of course, you know, she'd seen herself as a volunteer all her life, so it came naturally to her. But she was also, I think she may have been a little, a little bit depressed the first year in the White House. As she said, the job of First Lady is the hardest unpaid job in the world. And uh, she was over, because of her perfectionism, I think she was overwhelmed with all the things that needed to be accomplished. And of course, she was also uh, attempting to refurbish the White House, which had gone downhill a little bit during the Johnson years. And many people say that she did much more than Jacqueline Kennedy to uh, fix up the White House, the map room, the China room, uh, bring in great furnishings, either from outside or from the White House uh, storeroom. And there was a famous event. She got to do something that uh, Lady Bird Johnson and Lyndon never accomplished, was she got to Jacqueline Kennedy to come back to the White House in 1971. The occasion was the unveiling of the Kennedy's portraits, but she was willing to come and bring the children because she trusted Pat Nixon as a private person, not to use it to, to publicize it. And secondarily, she, I think she was very interested to see what she'd done with refurbishing the White House. But about by 1970, Nixon uh, began to see that she needed to have a larger role, and she was very, very upset when she heard about the major earthquake in Peru in the Andes, and she asked if she could go. And so he sent her as the first first lady to represent a president at an international uh, sort of catastrophe. And it was, she was amazing because she actually, she went up into the area where the earthquake had destroyed many homes with the first lady of Peru and, and taught her essentially how to walk into the ruins and console people. And she was very much like Queen Elizabeth during the Blitz. And uh, she was so successful at that, that the uh, Peruvian government uh, later gave her their highest uh, medal of honor in a ceremony at the White House. And she loved travel, and so in 1972, after, of course, she became very famous for her introducing American people to China, as Nixon, when they went to China in uh, the winter of uh, 72, Nixon was basically 
ensconced in meetings with Chow and Lai and Mao Zedong and the other leaders. And she had in her brilliant, bright, empathetic red coat, was served as, on television as the American Guide to China. But after that, um, she, Nixon sent her to Africa, and she, went, she was the first first lady to represent uh, an American president at the inauguration of a foreign head of state. And she was treated like a sort of conquering hero in Africa, 100,000 mobbing her along the streets, and she was riding in an open car as a, as a hero. And she consulted diplomatically with the heads of three countries discussing things like South, the situation in South Africa. So he really trusted her in a number of ways to, to handle things diplomatically and to be very discreet. And I think one of the tragedies of Watergate is that she really had found her stride as an international ambassador, and that was the end of it after Watergate. It never happened again. And during the 50s, she'd been called uh, a phenomenon a phenomenon of our times and a diplomat in high heels. So this was a major theme in her life, her ability to reach out to people in foreign cultures and convey the best of America to them. So I'm not sure that there's a question buried in here or not. Um, but in my own work, I, recently I've been doing a lot of looking at the relationships between the West, the people in the West Wing and the, the East Wing, where the First Lady's yes. office has traditionally been. And I know that you talked a lot about that um, during the Nixon administration. If, if it wasn't outright hostility, then it was at least somewhat broken communications between those two offices. Um, was that just a general misunderstanding between Nixon's staff and the office of the first lady, or did they not really res know what to do with her? Is that what it was? Well, I would say, first of all, and you've probably seen this in your research, uh, is that inevitably there's considerable conflict between East Wing and West Wing because the agendas just happen to clash. You know, the, the president may want, may want the first lady to stay out of certain things or be involved in certain things that are that are that are not agreed upon by herself so there's always tensions if you read the biographies the Sally Bedell Smith's book or about the Clinton marriage or Jody Cantor's book about the Obama's marriage, you'll see that's a consistent theme. I think it was particularly difficult in the Nixon years because Haldeman and, and the other crew, Ehrlichman, uh, around Nixon were very chauvinistic, and actually Haldeman really didn't like Pat Nixon at all, called her Thelma, which was her sort of... Uh, given name, uh, behind her back, her middle name, and Nixon did not, uh, sorry, Pat Nixon did not like Haldeman either. And, and Pat and her daughters, who were strong forces also, they, they felt that the president's men were not respectful of Mrs. Nixon and were not, and really cut him off from adequate feedback. So there were times where, uh, Nixon actually, for instance, redesigned with Haldeman the, the, uh, presidential plane, Air Force One, so that the first lady's compartment was, was far away from the president's compartment. As soon as she saw that, that was, you know, she was infuriated by that, and she said, no way. And there were very many conflicts. I mean, she believed much more in giving the press open open access to things, and she had to she tried to counterman Haldeman. But Haldeman also felt, and I think there was some truth to this, that at the beginning, the first lady's whole section 
insurrection in the East Wing was someone disorganized, and there was a real problem. And, and when, it wasn't until they brought Connie Stewart in as her head of chief of staff that he, she, Connie Stewart, developed an excellent relationship with Haldeman, and so there became a quartet, uh, whereas there had been a, a dysfunctional triad with Haldeman, Nixon, and Pat, sort of with distorted communications. Now... Pat could communicate to Connie, who could communicate to Haldeman, who could communicate to Nixon, and somehow that made the system work much more smoothly because Stewart and Haldeman got along well, even though Pat did not with Haldeman. And there were certainly times when, that Nixon, you know, uh, didn't consider his wife as he should have, and other times where he didn't realize until after the fact that his his men had, uh, you know left her out of things, and he got mad once at Haldeman for not bringing her up and introducing her during a political event and letting letting her be kept to the side. So, so I think there was tremendous amount of conflict, and part of it, as I say, goes with the territory. So what effect did Watergate have upon their marriage, and how did they recover from that? Well, I think, you know, I called the chapter about Watergate and their marriage falling apart, and I mean it both... In so, both in the sense that the political world was falling apart for Nixon, and the marriage was falling apart in that he was keeping secrets from her about everything that had to do with Watergate. And, and they had said early on that they did not want to discuss it because it was such a drag. They felt it would drag down their marriage. So they, they tried to avoid that and talk about other things. But the unfortunate consequence of that was that Nixon was so involved in, in all of the political intrigues with Watergate and with the taping and the, and the consequences of that, that he was hiding more and more of what was his essential psychic life from his wife. And I think they grew more distant in that last year in the White House uh, than at any other time, perhaps in their marriage. And I think one of the ways I saw that was I went through the records of how many daily records to see how often they had dinner together or got together. And whereas maybe just roughly it averaged 20 times a month in the fall of 1973, it was five times a month by in 1974. So there is clear evidence of that. And I think, you know, when you try to keep that many secrets in the marriage, it's just inevitably corrosive to the marriage. And I know there's, Julie Nixon, I repeat, Julie Nixon's story about Easter 1973, where he was hold, they were down in Florida for a vacation, and he was holed up just completely ignoring the family and obviously extraordinarily tense, but were not communicating anything about it. And Julie came to her father and said, look, you know, mom's trying and you've got to try harder. And he he said, well, I guess you're right. And then he went. It was a couple of days later. They went on uh, television to say that he was, you know, letting go Haldeman and Ehrlichman and firing Dean. So I think that uh, the marriage did suffer that very much. And at the end, of course, Pat would never have tapes. She thought it was a terrible invasion of privacy, and she also would have destroyed the tapes. So. I really wonder what would have happened if she'd been able to be privy to what was going on and what effect she might have had, but I can't say for sure. But the interesting thing was, as distant as it was, they, 
and how painful the final leave-taking was with being photographed near tears as he said goodbye to the nation and to his staff. Uh, when they got to, they flew to San Clemente, their home in California. First thing she did, and she'd had literally no sleep for three days. She was packing around the clock. Well, she went and unpacked the president's things to set up his bedroom there so that he could have a sense of continuity with the White House. And I think what happened during that period, interestingly enough, when all the other uh, distractions were ebbing away, even though they were under a lot of pressure from indictments and federal, you know, prosecutor, how do we say that? Uh, Prosecutions and things. I think they got closer because they... They actually began, they would have dinner every night, they would swim in the pool together, they would have quiet, and they rediscovered a kind of relationship that they'd had early on, which had just been overwhelmed by the degree of responsibility and uh, perfectionism they'd had. And so they suffered greatly in that Nixon almost died uh, from uh, phlebitis and Pat suffered a stroke in 1976, which took her a long time to recover from. But their marriage revived, and when they moved east in 1980, living uh, first for a year in a New York townhouse, not too far from where I used to live. Uh, in fact, it's only a couple blocks from where I live now. And then moving to New- Saddle River, New Jersey, they had created a wonderful balance for themselves uh, at a life that really worked well. He, she was one of the most admired women of the world for 14 years, including, which I think is amazing, including a number of years after the resignation when they were in exile in San Clemente. That shows how much the American people treasured her mm-hmm. when they hated her husband. And yet, so she had nothing to nothing to to fight for, so to speak, and she was able to keep her privacy, and she needed it because she had never fully recovered from the stroke. Uh, her speech was a little slurred, and uh, she walked a little, little bit of a trouble in her gait. Whereas he could go around the world reestablishing his reputation, still engaged in the political fray, and it seemed to work very well for them. And I think uh, they demonst- they had a very wonderful period in their marriage. They used to go on drives together, which they loved doing early in their marriage as well. Uh, I think it demonstrates the arc of a marriage can take when uh, it starts out very close and with a lot of fun and goes through very challenging and maybe distant times as people branch out professionally or otherwise and ends up back in a closer united phase. And of course, the famous thing that if, if you, anyone listening has not gone to YouTube and seen the, uh, the the video of Nixon absolutely beside himself, completely distraught at uh, Pat's funeral, he came out, he was crying so hysterically that he tried to cover his mouth with a handkerchief, but he, he just simply couldn't control himself and ended up... Um, also later uh, putting his head on uh, Nancy Reagan's shoulder and crying. Uh, when you see that, you, you truly, um, I think, can recognize the depth of his love for her and what she meant to him after a 53-year marriage. And, and so it, it's available to see on YouTube, and I think it's the kind of thing that changes people's minds. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Do you have any idea who you're going to be writing about next? 
Well, first of all, thank you for great questions. You've obviously read the book very carefully and are a presidential scholar yourself <laughs> because they were wonderful questions and I look forward to your book on uh, Mrs. Kennedy. Uh, uh, I would say, uh, somebody asked me that recently and I said my ideal, I, they published a uh, profile of me in the Albany Times Union uh, last weekend and that, that was their final question as well. And I said my ideal scenario would be uh, that President and Mrs. Clinton would read this interview and would contact me and ask me to be the official biographer of their marriage with the agreement that I'd have access to private archives and, uh, and that I wouldn't write the book until after the political part was finished because they're not going to have anyone do anything when, when things are up in the air politically. Right. Uh, so I certainly thought of that and also... Uh, thought of other marriages, including possibly Bobby and Ethel Kennedy's mm, marriage. That would be interesting, yeah. So, uh, but, uh, I'm a person who's married to one book at a time, and I'm busy <laughs> promoting the Nixon book, and I ha- I'm not yet ready to date another couple. <laughs> Understandable. I've been talking today with Will Swift about his new book, Pat and Dick, The Nixons, An Intimate Portrait of a Marriage. I'm Olai Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.